Well, grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to be looking in verses 22 through 35. Uh, For the last several weeks, we've uh, been unpacking, or next several weeks, sorry, we're going to be unpacking statements that Jesus makes in this conversation that happens in Capernaum in the synagogue. Um, John was written by the Apostle John. When you read through the Gospel, and you come across the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple, that's speaking of the Apostle John. He rarely uses his own name in his gospel. I think the only time it appears uh, is when uh, he outruns Peter and uh, when they were given the 12 apostles. The overarching theme to this particular gospel is to reveal the equality of Jesus and God, that they are of the same nature, and that the reason Jesus was sent is because God so loved the world, he wanted to save them. He wanted to save us. And so you find this overarching theme throughout the entire gospel as you read through it. It's in this gospel that we have this interaction, and only in this gospel that we have this interaction from the crowd that was part of the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Um, Verse 57, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, lets us know that this takes place in the synagogue as he, Jesus, taught at Capernaum. My owner, just to remind us, Capernaum was kind of the base of operations for Jesus. It's where he frequently would return, frequently would do ministry. It's where they probably lived in Peter's house or his mother-in-law's house, most likely Peter's house. Uh, It's the place where Jesus called four of the 12 disciples from their fishermen's post. And so he would frequently go back to Capernaum and do ministry there. Let's read our passage and we'll walk through. Beginning in verse 22, the word of the Lord says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." And they found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. And they said to him, What must we do? To be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered him, The work, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Passage picks up there in verse 22, so keep your Bibles handy. On the next day... That phrase is connecting this event 
to the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the crowds were unaware of what took place in the wee hours of the morning as Jesus went out for a stroll on the sea. They had no recollection or no idea about that. In verses 22 through 24, what we have is the crowd waking up, whether it's all 5,000 of them them or not, they wake up realizing that Jesus is nowhere to be found. At the same time, they also knew that the disciples left and Jesus remained behind. Because in John, Jesus dismisses the crowd. He tells them to go find food, go find shelter, because they were wanting to make Jesus their earthly king. They wanted to do it by force. So the crowd basically is waking up on the next day after they just had this miraculous feeding, asking the question, where did Jesus go? He was praying, and now he's gone. Yet there was an understanding the crowd in the crowd where Jesus was most likely, as we mentioned, back in Capernaum, because it was widely known that's where Jesus would frequently return to do ministry. Unfortunately for the crowds, there were not boats for them to get to Capernaum, so they could have walked. It would not have been that far of a walk, but in that moment, some ships arrived from Tiberias, verse 23, and the crowd takes the ships, and they make their way to Capernaum. So one thing that we can learn from the crowd, even though they had the wrong intentions in seeking Jesus, is that it's always good to know where to find Jesus, and it's always good to be where Jesus is. When Jesus was a boy, his parents took him to Jerusalem. They were going to go worship in the temple. It was in the midst of the craziness that they thought Jesus was in their caravan as they headed home, only find out that he was not there, so they had to run back to Jerusalem to look for him, in which they found him in the temple. They told him that they were searching for him in great distress, till which Jesus, the boy, says, "Did Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Here in the Gospel of John, in our passage this morning, the crowds are again going to find Jesus in his father's house in what is known as the synagogue. It was basically like churches in different places throughout Judea where the Jewish people could go and worship. Now, for people searching for Jesus, one of the easiest ways to find him, today even, is church. This is why we ask you to invite people to church. We will, they will hear the gospel. They will hear the story of Jesus. They'll get to learn about him. They'll get to meet with him. Of course, we know that Jesus can be found in other places. I've had many experiences with God and Jesus when I've been out in creation and just been meditating and praying and listening. I've had times where I've heard with Jesus and been in his presence when I've opened the word of God and actually listened what God was telling me from his scriptures. There's times I've been with Jesus when I've just been in prayer and just sitting in my home downstairs in our living room and and just hearing God speak over me, hearing God uh, tell me things that I need to do or, or challenge me at times. But we need to be where Jesus is. And so we have to know where to find him. We also have to know where Jesus isn't. What I mean by that is we have to allow the Holy Spirit that God has given us as his children to give us discernment when things that proclaim to be representing Christ are not. This last week I watched a documentary on a megachurch, which I'll name, leave nameless, but issues began to emerge within this megachurch that their staff and their pastors were unfaithful to their spouses Issues began emerging that it seemed like instead of worshiping, we were just going to be entertained, and there began to emerge ungodly preaching. What I mean is there are preachers out there who claim to represent Christ, claim claim to preach the Word of God, but they're only going to tickle your ear. 
And so these preachers were putting on a show. The worship service were putting on a show. And then people who were there who were actually seeking after Jesus and knowing Jesus began to see the inconsistencies. And so they began to leave. And the way they could see it is that they had met with Jesus themselves. They had been in the word of God. And then they would compare it to what they were experiencing when they gathered and worshiped. Did it match to what God said in his word? Was it consistent with the truth? What many of them discovered is they left and they shared in this documentary is they realized that this wasn't a church. It was a cult built on a world business model. Get as many people in the doors as you can, entertain them, ask them for money, and then let them go out and live their life. The church is still in existence today, but it's gone through multiple lawsuits. Its founding pastor has lost integrity, and he is no longer doing active ministry. In our passage, how this relates is the crowd woke up. They realized Jesus had left. But they also went looking for him, and they had an idea where they might find him. Even though they went looking with the wrong intentions, which Jesus is going to bring out in our passage, once the crowd found him, they brought a series of questions to him, and there's three in our verses that we're looking at this morning. The first is found in verse 25. It says, Rabbi, which that word means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus doesn't answer the question to the crowds because he couldn't, well, he could, but he didn't tell it, well, I went for a walk on the sea last night, and that's how I got here. But the question is, you know, how did you get here? When did you get here? When did you leave? The statement Jesus makes brings a question we have to ask about ourselves, though. Verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here's the question we all have to ask. Why are we seeking after Jesus? Most people seek after Jesus to find forgiveness, receive salvation, get the promise of eternal life, become back into a restored relationship with God and be able to have communion with him. But Jesus knew these crowd's intentions as they came and found him. They didn't come seeking after Jesus for any of those things. They were seeking after Jesus because he provided a personal benefit to them. This is what Jesus is saying. The crowds came because they got their bellies full of bread, and they didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to do anything to obtain it. Instead, they experienced this sign, and John uses that word sign when he's referring to miracles throughout the gospel. And it benefited them. They enjoyed it. The Gospel of Mark points out that after the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus sent the disciples on, the disciples did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So if the disciples, who were the closest to Jesus, didn't understand about the sign or the miracle, we can probably assume that the crowds didn't understand it either. Here's the thing. If we're seeking after Jesus for our personal benefit, then we have the wrong intention. We do benefit from Jesus, those things I mentioned. If Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you're saved, you're forgiven, you've been given eternal life, you've been given the Holy Spirit, sealed for eternity, you have a restored relationship back with God, so we do find benefits in a relationship with Jesus, 
But to seek after him is not so we can get rich. It's not so we can have a life where everything goes smoothly and we never get sick and nothing ever breaks down. But this is what the crowd wanted from Jesus. They wanted him to continue to benefit them. They had the wrong intentions. We know this because at the end of the feeding 5,000, they wanted to force Jesus into this role as an earthly king. And now they come finding him, wanting him to benefit their physical bodies instead of their spiritual souls. This crowd was materialistic when it came to Jesus Christ. All they were thinking about was material. And they were in the physical. They could not understand their spiritual need. And Jesus is trying to tell them and he's trying to tell us through the word of God that we have greater needs than physical needs. Verse 27 captures this truth. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. That word seal means he's given him his authority. He's given him his approval. See, if we live for this world and not for the eternal, we miss the point of life. The point of life is to live for the kingdom. It's to live for God and to bring him glory now that we know him and we know he is holy and he is gracious and he is loving and he is kind. And so our whole lives are to live him and to lift him up. And even though this crowd came with the wrong intentions, Jesus shows the love of the Father, he still offers them what they need, even though they couldn't recognize you. You see, which the Son of Man will give to you. Maybe some here today who have come with the wrong intentions. Maybe you're here because your parents drug you out of bed and forced you to come. Maybe you're here because you came hoping for a three-point sermon to give you a roadmap for life. Or a message that would make the mess that you find yourself in all better. See, if we don't look for Jesus for what he truly has to offer an eternal life and restore relationship with the Father, we miss the point. It would appear the crowds start to get it, right? Verse 28, they ask him another question, question number two. What must we do to be doing the works of God? So they've moved from this place. They're no longer concerned with how or when Jesus got to Capernaum. Their second question seems to have more of a spiritual application. They've seen the mighty works that Jesus has done. They've experienced it firsthand through the miraculous feeding. And now they're asking Jesus, how can we perform and how can we do the works of God that you are obviously doing? They're slowly starting to take this conversation into a deeper meaning from their experience with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. One being that Jesus is obviously doing the works of God within their midst. So they came for the physical, but Jesus begins pointing them to the spiritual, which is what he tells them in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And what we learn as we seek Jesus is that faith is the requirement in seeking Jesus. The word believe there carries the meaning of having faith, of trusting, of relying. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 9, and without faith, 
It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, there's that word again, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if this crowd wants to be where the will of God is, it begins by believing the one whom God has sent to them. And the same thing goes for us. If we want to be in God's will, if you're here and you want to know what God wants for your life, it is about believing in the one, Jesus, whom God sent to save the world. Only then, with that belief and that faith and that trusting and relying, can we ever be in the will of God. Because until you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're already outside his will for your life. His will is that you would be saved. His will is that you would be his child. His will is that you would have an eternal home in heaven. And so if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then you're already outside his will, and that can change today. That's why God sent him. One commentator writes, Believing in the one whom God sent secures the gift of the food that endures to eternal life. Because when people believe in him, Jesus reveals himself to them, and his Father also reveals himself to them. It is in relationship with God through Jesus Christ what people experience eternal life and human hunger is met. What Jesus is doing with all this food talk about perishing food and food that endures there in verse 27 is he's taking it to a deeper need that the people actually have. They may have came looking for more bread for the physical, but Jesus is revealing to them and he's revealing to us our greatest need, our greatest hunger that God has given us is for spiritual nourishment, which can only be found through and in Jesus Christ. People without Christ are spiritually hungry. Matter of fact, we could even say they're spiritually famished. This is why people without Christ today, just as people in the crowd here in John chapter 6, when they're spiritually hungry and famished, they go looking for anything else to fill that void. This is what the crowd is doing. They're looking for something to fill a void that they are experiencing in their heart and their soul, and they know that Jesus has something about him, but they can't quite get past the physical and the material and their greatest need. That's what Jesus is trying to point them to. You have a greater need than physical food. It's your spiritual need. At this point in reading, we should hope that they begin to understand. They begin to understand what they really need. But then they ask their third question in verse 30. Then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What arrogance. This crowd is now looking at Jesus, whom they came looking for. They say, prove yourself. Prove yourself. And we have to keep in mind with the context of the entire chapter, this is a crowd that came from the plus 5,000 in the crowd that were just fed by Jesus from five loaves and two fish. And yet they come to him and they say, prove yourself. The Bible says that they ate and they were fully satisfied. They weren't wanting more food. They, they were good. And they were amazed what Jesus did. Even when they approach Jesus for the first time, they call him rabbi, which means teacher. And yet here, they're not getting what they initially wanted because they're seeking the wrong thing. And so 
the response is prove yourself. You know, we can do the same thing to God. We can know all about his goodness. We can know all about his love, his grace, and his mercy, and his forgiveness, and the gift of eternal life, and the blessings he gives us through the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. And we can have a rough time, and we can say, God, you need to prove yourself again. That's what the crowd's doing. Not satisfied with what you've already given me. Do some more. Same time, they're understanding there is something different about this Jesus guy. And that's the background of their statement when they bring up the story about Moses in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he, and that he is referring to Moses. We can know that by how Jesus responds. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you understand something's different about Jesus. The story obviously comes from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's a story when Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness because they rebelled against God. And yet even in the rebellion, in the Old Testament, you see the grace and the love of God. Even when they rebelled against him, he continued to provide for them. He continued to nourish them. He continued to give them a means to continue living. What their statement is coming from, though, is an inaccurate teaching that they would have heard from the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders and in the synagogue. What that teaching was is that they, they said that the Messiah, when he would come, he would do greater things than Moses ever did. So this is their statement. Well, Moses gave us food. What are you going to give us? Moses took care of us. What are you going to do? The crowd is taking a flawed teaching from an inter improper interpretation from Exodus account and using it as ammunition against Jesus Christ to prove that he is the second Moses or he is the, in fact the redeemer who has come to save them. It's also tying back to their inaccurate understanding who the Messiah would be. That he would come and he would usher in a new and a greater Israel. This is why Jesus corrects them. Verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, gives, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus pointed out, look, it wasn't Moses. It wasn't a Moses' power. It was God the provider, Jehovah Jireh, who sustained your ancestors. And now standing before you is another provision by God, someone to sustain you into eternal life. But what he's bringing them back to and what he brings us to is God has to be the focus of seeking. Jesus would, in fact, I mean, he would do greater things than Moses, right? Moses didn't die and rise again. He would do greater things than Moses. This crowd, though, reveals a danger we all can fall into when we come to a place with where Jesus is, and we come into the presence of God, but we can fail to actually seek after him. It's possible that we can engage in worship and not actually be worshiping. It's possible that we can listen to the word of God or listen to a message or a sermon and not actually hear it. It's possible that we can be in church physically, but maybe not actually be here mentally, maybe not fully be engaged. Tell you what, if anyone's here this morning and came to church, the intention of not seeking after God and not hearing from God, then you came with the wrong intentions. I'm glad you're here, but you're, you're missing the point. This isn't just a place to sit and to gather. 
and to check off your Sunday thing to do. If you came to church on Sunday and you, or you go to church on Sunday just to check it off your Sunday thing, then it, you're missing the point. If we open the Word of God to check off our daily Bible reading in our app or whatever, but not actually hear the voice of God speaking to our hearts, we've missed the point. If we bow our heads in prayer because everyone else is bowing their heads in prayer because someone said, well, let's pray, and so we just did what we naturally do, but we're not actually talking with God. We're not actually listening to God. We've missed the point. If we're singing songs because everyone else is, that's what we've been trained to do. We're not actually worshiping the God who loves us and saved us. We're missing the point. These people missed the point. They came searching for Jesus because he filled their bellies, but they weren't searching for God, and they missed the point. So Jesus here in his love and his grace is trying to awaken them spiritually, which is why he says what he says in verse 33, that he is the bread of God who came to give life to the world. In Jesus' statement, he's pointing out God was actively involved in the past. That's the story of Moses and the manna. He was actively involved in the past to sustain his people, and now he is currently in their presence in the form of Jesus Christ to sustain them eternally. Now the crowd may not fully understand the implications. They understood Without another sign, or without further proof, they weren't going to believe him. They weren't going to accept what Jesus was offering. He's wanting to get them to a place to understand that their dependence shouldn't be on the earthly or the physical needs, but on the spiritual need, which again can only be filled through Jesus. And this is why we seek after Jesus. We seek after Jesus because he is the source. He is the only source. He is the only source of salvation. He is the only source back to the Father. He is the only source of truth. He is the only source to which we are to place our faith in. And after hearing Jesus and what he had to say to them, it seemed they started to understand some of it. The crowd begins to beg Jesus for this bread that he's talking about. Verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. As God provided for his people through the manna, now God was providing for all people through Jesus Christ. And this brings Jesus to his first emphatic statement of the I am's in the Gospel of John. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So as the crowd's minds were on Moses and Exodus, Jesus, the master teacher, says, I am the bread of life. And they would have heard the echo of how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. The covenantal God, the God of promise. It's a very similar statement that Jesus gave the woman at the well in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, the conversation was about food, but it was about water, which Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And just like here in John 6 and there in John 4, the woman heard about this water and she wanted it because she knew it would benefit her. She wouldn't have to come out to this well anymore, but Jesus wasn't speaking about physical, just like he's not talking about physical food here. 
Both the water of John 4 and the bread of John 6 are pointing to the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is what every person truly needs. Again, he's not talking about physical needs, but spiritual needs that he came to fill and give to all people. Now, bread was a typical food which nourished people in this area. Every culture, even today, has some type of bread that they use to eat. What Jesus is saying, that I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am the epitome of nourishment for the human soul and the human heart. Because the bread he offers is more satisfying than the physical bread one can eat. This is why when people see Jesus as the source, they will not hunger and never thirst spiritually. It all comes back to what Jesus said in verse 29, in believing in him putting one's faith in him alone, relying on his provision and his nourishment, not only in this life, but for the eternal one. So as believers, it brings us to a couple questions. What are we hungering for? What are we chasing after? What are we seeking? Is it Jesus and what he gives, or is it the things of this world like the crowd? Maybe you're here this morning and you've yet to find Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's here. He's inviting you to a relationship. So the question for you is, have you found spiritual nourishment in Christ alone by putting your faith in Christ alone? That's why he came. To satisfy our souls. To fill our hearts with the love of God. If you're here this morning and you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible points out you're lost. And you're also trying to fill your heart with all the other things of this world which will never satisfy it. It'll never nourish you like Jesus Christ will. And this is why we preach the gospel. If you're here this morning, Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior. Here's the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. God created you for a relationship with him. We see that in the very beginning, before sin came in the world, God wanted a relationship with people who were made in his image, and God has made you in his image. It's your sin that is separating you from that relationship. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, meaning it's eternal separation from the God of the living. But there's a gift, and that gift is found in Jesus Christ. God sent his only son, the only source, down to this earth to live a perfect life according to his standards. Jesus Christ never sinned. He died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose again to show that he has the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And the Bible says when we believe in our heart that to be true and that God would love us that much and God would sacrifice so much for us to be back and restored in relationship with him. When we believe that, the Bible says we must then confess it. Lord, I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again, that I could be forgiven and be given eternal life. If you're here this morning, you've yet to confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I'm going to be standing down here. You don't have to come down and stand with me, but I'm going to invite you to come and sit in the front row, and we will talk, we will pray, we will celebrate. But as God's people, we all need to ask the question, what are we truly hungering for? Do we want more of him? Do we desire him? Do we expect to hear from him? Let's not miss the point. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. 
Lord, thank you even when we don't understand, you still offer your gifts of love and grace and mercy. Even when we don't understand, you still draw near to us. Even when we're going through difficult times, you're right there in the midst of it with us. Father, we want to be a church. We want to be a people that only hungers for you, and we only find satisfaction in you, for you are good. We thank you that you're the same God from Genesis to the Gospel of John to Revelation, and everything is happening according to your plan. And so, Father, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, then it is your plan that they would be here today, and today would be their day of salvation. I pray your spirit come upon them, you give them the courage to come down, and you change their eternal destiny. Again, thanks for this grace. We ask you to continue to be glorified in this time of invitation and response. For you alone are worthy of it. And praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.